Today's scripture reading will be found in John chapter 10. I'll be starting in verse 1. I'll be reading to verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in and by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he was brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was trying to say. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that, may, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. We have a special guest today, Reed Ferguson. Most of you guys know him. If you don't, he's like a, like a teddy bear when he comes up here. <laughs> and uh, he just dispenses God's word in a loving way. And uh, you get to see Jesus in a loving way. You get to see yourself through other people's eyes. Apparently to Matt, I am fuzzy, overstuffed, and lifeless. So... <laughs> I am a little concerned about that characterization, but we'll, uh, we'll let it go for, for now. If you'd open your Bibles with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Uh, there's little doubt that this passage is pretty familiar to those of us who've spent any amount of time in our Bibles at all. Uh, after all, most of us were uh, probably... Uh, introduced to Bible reading by some well-meaning soul saying, you know, you, if you want to start, start with the Gospel of John. Uh, it's a good place to go, and happily so. But as we come uh, to these verses today, uh, I want to make uh, a few prefacing comments before we dig into the study itself, uh, and then I'm going to tease out what uh, Don Carson would call an apostolic number of observations, uh, followed by just a couple of quick uh, additional applications. So two things at the outset, if this sounds too academic for you, bear with me. Uh, and that is that chapter 10 
comes after chapter 9. Now, that's, re that's really important. It, it may not sound it, but it really is. Um, it's important because if we're going to get at what Jesus was getting at in chapter 10, we have to understand the context that chapter 9 uh, brings to the whole thing. Uh, secondly, if you're not paying close attention to the text as you read through it, and we just had it read for us, you're going to miss how Jesus switches up his metaphors. Um, he's, he, and we're going to see that in, in due course. We'll see why they are, and we're actually going to um, uh, do the second metaphor kind of closer to the end. We'll deal with the first two. Uh, but chapter 9, just going back for a quick review, is taking place probably in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly. The text doesn't tell us, but probably in Jerusalem. And they're passing by. Jesus and his disciples are passing by a man who is blind. And we're told by the text that he was born blind. And so the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, that may seem to be an odd question for us, but it wasn't for them. Uh, it was common for the Jews of that day to assume a one-for-one -one correspondence between personal sin and personal ills or woes of various kind, especially for those who were impoverished or disabled. There was a rabbinic thought that there must be sin somewhere because they, they understood the old covenant as being, if you're walking with God, you'll be blessed. And therefore, wealthy people are the most blessed people. Interesting how that's made its way back into evangelicalism in our day. Uh, it's problematic in Jesus' day, and it's problematic still. And so they thought maybe that's the issue here. And some rabbis even taught that if a woman, when she was pregnant, had gone and worshipped a false idol, that therefore the fetus was involved in that idolatrous worship. And so that might be why this guy was born blind. So that would not have been a foreign way of thinking to them. That would have been pretty common. They weren't, the disciples weren't saying something totally out of, out of context. Now, the scripture is clear, all sin, uh, sin from the very beginning, has caused all that brings pain and suffering into the world in a general sense. We know that. But there's very few places, they're very rare in scripture, where someone's specific illness or, or problem is related to a specific sin. That's highly unusual. You get the, the bigger picture instead. So Jesus answers accordingly. He says, you know, personal sin is not the problem in this case, but rather how it is that he, Jesus, as God's anointed agent, is sent to use this as an opportunity to show God's glory in overcoming sin and its global consequences. So he's building off of their question to say, this is about demonstrating something about God himself and my role in what God's plan is. Uh, more specifically, that he's the light of the world, this, this whole paradigm of blindness and then giving sight, that Christ is the light of the world and he brings sight, sight to enable us to understand God's reality as God understands it what Francis Schaeffer used to call real reality. 
because we kind of live in a fog until we come to Christ, and then we understand, wow, the world is vastly different than we thought it was. Uh, there's this God who created us, and there's all the things that come from that, and only in Christ do we really grasp the fullness of what that reality is. Don Carson notes in this passage, quote, it's not just a miracle, it's a sign. The work of the Father mediated through the sent one to shed light on those who live in darkness, close quote. That's, that's what's going on in the passage. So Jesus responds. He spits on the ground. He makes a little bit of mud. He puts that mud on the blind man's eyes and says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll, you'll get your sight back. And sure enough, he does that and he comes back seeing. Now, a lot of people like to muse on why did Jesus heal this way? We don't know. Better yet, it doesn't matter. So if you're all tied up in knots over why he may have done this, forget it. The text doesn't tell us, so it must not be important. You can set that off to the side. So, uh, but the miracle really stirs up the people, um, especially those who have known this man and his family all along. I mean, he's been blind since birth. We don't know how old he is at this point, but he's not a kid anymore. And they've never seen this, and that stir causes the Pharisees to investigate. They've got to find out what this is all about because such a miracle raises the specter of the question, the possibility of Jesus not just being a prophet or a healer, but maybe he was the Messiah. And if he was the Messiah, that was really problematic for them because in earlier in John, we find out the Pharisees had said that if anyone confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, they're to be put out of the synagogue. So this has brought them to a crisis point. Um, and to top it all off, Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And so it would have been considered working, which was problematic uh, above and beyond the rest of it. So the Pharisees decide to interrogate the healed man. They get no joy from him. They decide to interrogate his parents. They're a little bit on the skittish side. They get no joy from them. And so once again, they bring the blind man back in, but they just can't wrap their heads around it. And no matter what, uh, no matter how obvious, they're unwilling to accept what this might mean. Uh, mainly because if he's the Messiah, they lose their position of power. They're in trouble. So in the midst of it all, the healed man is really a sharp individual. After they've said, you know, this, this man can't be from God who healed you, the, the man quips. If you look at, at 930, I'm not going to turn back there now. Let me read it for you. Quote, this is an amazing thing, he says to the Pharisees. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, close quote. Well, at this point, they are just exasperated. So they do what every good religious leader does. They just throw him out. Um, and then Jesus, he meets up with Jesus again, and Jesus has a discussion with him. He begins to worship him, and Jesus says, look, it's for judgment 
that I came into this world, uh, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see, who see may become blind. Now, that may sound a little odd at the beginning. We only think of Jesus coming in terms of doing nice things. But here he says, no, I've also come to do some, some judging things in the process. And you'll remember when Noah built the ark, the ark was built to save. But in the refusal to hear the preaching of Noah for 120 years, those who refused, Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah condemned the world through building the ark. The very thing that he was doing to save actually condemned. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. He had come to judge by giving the truth. He's giving the truth in order to save. But if you refuse that truth, it condemns you. That principle remains true. You can't reject God's revelation and then expect to not suffer the consequences. That's going to be the result. Something's going to happen. For instance, if we refuse God's word as God's word, then we close ourselves off to everything that God reveals. We'll never be able to interpret things rightly if we won't listen to what he says here. Uh, an example, if you're riding in your car and you don't like what you're hearing on the radio and you turn the radio down, you turn down all the stations, not just one station. You're, the volume control controls all at the same time. Any place you reject God's word, where you turn the volume down on any portion of what God has said, you turn the volume down on everything God has said. We're not allowed to pick and choose the truths from, from the Bible. We have to take it as a whole or we lose it as a whole. And it's a pretty dangerous thing to have, and it's very common right now. There's a, it happened in early in church history. There was a man by the name of Marcion who decided there were portions of the scripture that didn't belong in the scripture. And the problem is you reject part of the scripture, you reject all of the scripture, you're going to lose all the light. You can't lose just part of it. Well, some of the Pharisees overhearing, overhearing Jesus' statement about coming for judgment and that those who, who um, he came so that those who were blind could see, but those who said they see uh, would become blind. They shot back, are we also blind? And Jesus responds that had they known their blindness the way the blind man knew that he was blind, then they would have come to him and gotten sight. But because they claim not to need healed from their blindness, they're going to remain blind. That's the way the judgment of God works. Now, this, this translates into some very basic reality for everybody. No one is saved until they come to know their need of salvation. We must confess to being lost sinners before we can ever have the forgiveness that's found in the cross. Uh, this was part of the scandal of John's baptism. John appears on the scene and he starts baptizing people. And what does the text say? That they came confessing their sins. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't want to come and confess their sins. Why? Because it meant their system wasn't sufficient. 
to be in right standing with God. If they were to hear the preaching of John and say, I need to be baptized, I need to be cleansed, the same way a leper needs to be cleansed and brought into the community again, or the same way a, a Gentile proselyte would, would come into the Jewish community, they'd be confessing that their system wasn't sufficient. They couldn't do that. Their ego wouldn't allow them to do that. And some people, maybe even here this morning, your ego won't let you say, I am broken and undone and have no way to be reconciled to God. But until you do, you can't be reconciled to him. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. So the majorities of the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't admit to being unclean and it meant that their law-keeping was insufficient and that they needed something else to be right with God. So all of this is what leads up to chapter 10. That's the dynamic of what's happening when we come to this portion that Jesus begins to unpack for us. And here he unpacks the difference between himself as the true shepherd of God's people and the corrupt and spiritually blind Jewish leaders who were supposed to be shepherding God's people until the Messiah came, but in denying Jesus was the Messiah, were actually leading people away from him and to condemnation. Now, one more thing to get us there, and that is that this, this figure of the Jewish leadership being referred to as shepherds is an Old Testament trope that they all would have identified. We won't necessarily connect that, but they would have. They would have caught what was, was going on here. And you can find this reference to the Jewish leadership supposing to be shepherds all through the Old Testament. You can see it especially in Jeremiah and in Zechariah, among other places, but especially in Ezekiel chapter 34. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 34 for just a moment. And I, I just want to look at the first six verses. We're going to do this very quickly. And then when we're done with those, keep your finger in Ezekiel 34 because we're going to come back to it later as we work through this. Ezekiel chapter 34, picking up in verse 1. I'll wait, I'll wait till the pages stop flipping because then I'll know you're there. Uh, we don't go to Ezekiel a lot, do we? It's a, I've, once I was with a crowd and I said, let's turn to Hezekiah 4.12. And it was interesting to hear the pages flip because there is no Hezekiah in the Old Testament. That's okay. Picking up in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep 
were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. That's God indicting the Jewish leadership, especially the priesthood, the ones who should be shepherding God's people. Now that's what gives Jesus' words in verses 11 and 14 in chapter 10 their full force, where he says, but in contrast to this, I am the good shepherd. The the religious leadership of Ezekiel Ezekiel 34, which was now exemplified in the Pharisee shepherds of chapter 9, were so bent on maintaining their position and their power that they would deny the obvious and in turning men away from Christ, doing the worst possible damage to their souls. And might I say, anyone who turns the, the hearts and the minds of people away from Christ does them eternal, destructive damage. Don't listen to anyone who turns you away from Christ to something else, even if they do it in the name of Christ. Now, when we get to 10 then, his remarks really divide up into three sections. They're really easy to follow, and we're going to work through those three. In verses 1 through 5, he paints the picture of himself not just as a shepherd, but the good shepherd. Then in 7 through 9, he changes the metaphor, showing how he is the door to the sheepfold, The only way that you and I can become part of the sheep of God's flock is through him. So he's the door in that. And then in 10 through 16 and 18, he emphasizes once again that he is the good shepherd. So it starts off with he's the shepherd, then he's the door, and then he's the good shepherd. And all of it gives us all that we're going to consider here this morning. And they are just so many sweet things. And I wish I could expand on all of them, but we've got too many to do that. I think I shared with you before that there was, um, it was an old a Puritan who had gotten up. They were known for being very prolix, very long, and having very many, you know, when you, when you say 65thly in your sermon, you've probably gone a little long. And, and so this one Puritan pastor got up and said, you know, because I had so many points in this morning's sermon, uh, tonight's sermon will be pointless. I think that's not quite the way to say it, but I've got a lot of points, but I'm going to go through them kind of quickly this morning, all right? So, so bear with me. So picking up in verses 1 through 3 of John 10, which has already been read for us, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And this gives us our first consideration. And if you're keeping notes and you're filling in the blanks, and that is that Jesus is God's only authorized shepherd. Jesus is God's only authorized shepherd the only one with absolute right to God's flock. Even pastors today are only at best under shepherds. Christ is always the shepherd himself. Now, there probably aren't too many here, although there might be some, 
who have a lot of direct experience with sheep herding. But for Jesus' audience, this metaphor would have been really plain. They would have got it right off the bat. Um, these things were highly uh, suggestive as well as highly familiar. Uh, so it, it is with this idea of the gatekeeper. It was common in Jesus' day for, uh, especially in the outlying villages, where a number of families at the end of the day would gather their various personal flocks together into one big area to keep the sheep, and then they would hire a gatekeeper who would watch over the sheep, these, these collected flocks at night, to protect them from any harm, whether it be an animal or somebody who would break in to try and steal them. They'd put them in one large enclosure, uh, and, and the gatekeeper would keep them from the end of the day until the morning. Uh, and then the point that Jesus is making, and we really don't want to miss this, is because in the morning, the various shepherds from the families would come and get their sheep and go. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm the one who's authorized to come to the gate and get all the sheep. That's me. Jesus isn't putting the spotlight on the gatekeeper here, but he's putting, on, putting it on himself as the shepherd of God's flock. He's going back to Ezekiel 34. We see that he alone is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. Let me, I told you to keep your, your hand in Ezekiel 34. Do that. We're going to go back to there. But he alone can be the great shepherd, as he's called in Hebrews 13. He's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. So jump back there real quick. We, we left off in verse 6, but now let's pick up in verse 11. This is so important. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that, I have, been, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. What's God saying? I'm going to become the shepherd. Th these, these spiritual leaders in Israel have totally lost their place, and so I'm going to have to shepherd the sheep myself. Verse 13, And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. This is Jesus fulfilling this prophecy and telling them at this point, this is me. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who has authority here. And all those Pharisees who were turning you away from me, they are of no account. I'm the shepherd. And, and let me tell you, Christian, 
bear in mind, this is your shepherd. This is your savior, the one who is the great shepherd of God. He takes responsibility for you. He takes responsibility for your soul to make you and to complete you in his own image. He's the one who began a good work in you, and he will complete it until he returns. This is the one who shepherds your soul. This is the first and great point that Christ is making, that he alone has the right to shepherd God's flock, and as God's shepherd, he takes full responsibility for her, and he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies of the Old Testament in that regard. Jesus is God himself searching for and seeking out his sheep. He is the one who rescues us from all the places where we've been scattered by life and by sin. He's the one who gathers us out of all the nations through the preaching of the gospel. And he's the one who feeds us in good pasture and he binds up our wounds and he strengthens the weak and to destroying those who would harm them. So it is Jesus begins, just begins to unpack just what his shepherding is going to entail, which is what he's going to do in the rest of this passage, with his divine access, his divine right to shepherd God's flock. Might I just mention that no matter what under-shepherd may have hurt you or injured you or done you wrong, the good shepherd the great shepherd, is still your shepherd. It's a comfort to us who have failed sometimes in the pastorate to know that we're just the under-shepherd and the good shepherd is still in control. Secondly, in verse 3 of John 10, notice that he calls his own by name. Jesus calls his own by name. What a wonder that is. Salvation is a corporate thing in that he brings us into one flock, but he brings us individually into one flock. Jesus knows each one of us intimately, personally. Indeed, he's the one who names us for himself and then calls us each individually. It's said that back when Charles Spurgeon in England, the prince of the Victorian preachers in the 1800s, that he had started an orphanage, and at one point the orphanage had over 300 children in it, but he knew every one of those children by name. Christ knows every one of us by name. He knows you. He knows your characteristics. He knows your foibles. He knows your flaws. He knows your strong points. He knows everything about you, how you think, how you reason. He knows how you feel. He knows how you perceive things and how you respond to things. He knows you intimately, and when he called you to himself, he called you by name. In saving us out of the billions in this world, He calls each one by name into new life into himself, the same as he called Lazarus out of the grave. One wag said that when Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus, if he had just shouted out, come forth, and not Lazarus come forth, 
all of the graves would have opened up and they would have come out. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that at that moment he called Lazarus out and that's how you came out of the grave. If you're saved today, it's because at some point in time, the God of glory stood at heaven's gate and said, David, come forth and you were made alive in Christ. That's true with everyone who sees today. Know this, believer, you're not some faceless, nameless byproduct of, of an impersonal saving act. You're saved today because, as Romans 8 says so carefully, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Man, he calls his own by name. By name. When my dad was uh, facing his final years, the last, uh, he died at 96, um, the last four years, he didn't know my name anymore. Matter of fact, but he loved my wife so much, he kept calling me Sky's husband. Well, that's okay. You know, I suppose I can, I can live with that. Uh, but, but he's never forgotten once the name of his children. Christ knows you all fully by name. What a wonderful word that word those is in Romans 8. He called you, Christian, and he called so that you could be delivered from the domain of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his son. Also in verse 3, it says that he leads us. He calls his own by name and leads them out. He leads us. One of the great things about Christ as our Savior and as our shepherd is that he doesn't save us and then leave us to our own devices. But he's always leading us. He's always calling to us, guiding us through his word, pricking our ears by his spirit. And he leads us in certain predictable places. He always leads us out from the constraints of the law to enjoy the freedom of a cleansed conscience, of forgiveness of sins, of full justification, of the unbreakable promise of the resurrection to come. And as Psalm 23 reminds us, he's leading us in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake, he never leads us into sin. By his word and by his spirit, he's always leading us toward holiness and wholeness and the life and existence that we're going to have with him in glory forever. After his resurrection, Jesus was with the disciples when he told Peter that he was going to suffer a martyr's death. Peter wasn't excited about that, and he looked over his shoulder at John and asked, well, what about him? To which Jesus replied, hey, if, if it's my will that he remains until I come again, what does that mean? You follow me. Because he's always leading. Follow me. Do you remember the exchange with the disciples in John 14? Jesus says, let me quote 14.2, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare, 
prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, Thomas, not quite getting it, Thomas, I identify with this guy. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, how, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus replies, well, first, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then secondly, no one comes to the Father but by me. So where does Jesus lead? Always to the Father. That's where he's taking us. He's taking us to our eternal reward in him. He's never taking us into sin, but always and ever taking us to the Father, closer to him. Fourth, in verse 4, and it says, And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. He goes before us. This is the way the shepherd works. He goes before us. Christ never sends us anywhere he's unwilling to go himself, even to the cross. And he goes before us even there that we might know that in him our safety is absolutely assured. There's something just so sweet in this that appears from the whole context of the sheep-shepherd metaphor that he's using. One commentator wrote this about the passage, quote, unlike Western shepherds who drive the sheep, often using a sheepdog, the shepherds of the Near East both now and in Jesus' day led their flocks, their voice calling them on, close quote. He is always a leading Christ. The Lord is our shepherd, and that's why we'll want for nothing, because He's the one who leads us beside the still, safe, and refreshing waters and leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He never leads us into danger unprotected. Even when we have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, his shepherd's rod and his staff, his tools of herdsmanship, will comfort us even there. I was listening to a sermon just the other day, on the plane ride home, actually Friday. Uh, and the pastor was talking about his wife who had gone through um, a terrible bout with cancer, um, suffering double mastectomy and uh, years, really, of treatment. And she's now cancer-free, but while she was in the midst of it, she was asked to come and be a part of a group that was meeting with another gal who was going through cancer at the time. And when she was asked to pray, there were about 80 people there, she prayed too, and she prayed, Lord, it would be so gracious and good if you would extend your mercy and heal her. But if not, will you help her die well? There were so many people that were offended at that prayer. But isn't, isn't this our Christ? who leads us to know how to die well. I had a friend, a dear friend who's with Christ now, who was a missionary for many years behind the Iron Curtain. He would fly over there and hold youth camps in Belarus and uh, all kinds of strange places, even before the Iron Curtain fell. And he decided after 40, more than 40 years on the mission field to come back to, to New York and uh, kind of semi-retire. 
and no sooner did he get back than uh, they were only back, I think, about a year. And his wife was driving, and she had a brain aneurysm and suddenly died. And then he found out that he had cancer. And I went to the funeral of his wife. I walked in the door, and I went up to him, and I said, Chet, how are you? I love you. And he said, he does all things well. Our shepherd leads us. And even in the worst of places, he never stops leading us. Hebrews 9 reminds us that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. And so we have confidence, too, that he has gone before us into those holy places, and where he leads, we can follow. He's always going on before us to the cross, to the grave, and to resurrection. He never just sends us, but as the good shepherd, he always goes before us. Now, if all this were not enough, Jesus goes on to explicate it even more. In verse 10, he reminds them that he gives abundant life. He gives abundant life, unlike those false shepherds who had no right to the sheep like he has, whom he styles as thieves and who only come to kill and to steal and to destroy because they deny him his rightful place. He came to grant us abundant life, life in the reality of God's creation and of God's plans and of God's purposes, not mere existence, but plunged into the meaning of life in in him. Sadly, in our day and culture, some teach that the abundant life that Christ gives to his church is nothing other than material wealth and worldly success. How tragic is that and how tragically wrong? I mean, think about it for a second, really. Jesus went to the cross so I could have a better car, a prettier wife, a nicer children, higher paying job or a bigger house. I mean, that's, that's disgusting. It's obscene. If in Christ, Paul writes, we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. What a horrible cast to put on the gospel. Christ died just to get me more of what everyone else already has and then only to leave it here when we die? What would such a gospel be to, and a vision of the good shepherd be to those countless believers throughout history who have been marginalized and persecuted and and even martyred? If, If good stuff now, like everybody else strives after, were his mission, what does that say to those whose lives are literally in danger for simply owning a Bible like in North Korea? What does that say to the millions who live in the slums of Bombay or Calcutta or Rochester or in poverty here in Danceville? To those who have no conceivable hope of ever changing their lot in life. Does it mean that the super rich who spurn God somehow have this abundant life? Is the abundant life really Las Vegas? can't be. 
The abundant life that he grants is coming into the reality of the cosmos in living vital relationship with the God who has spoken everything into existence and being restored to his plans and purposes for all of life and creation, all with an eternal destiny in him. That's abundant life. Just two weeks ago, I sat with a rabbi in Fort Worth, and I said, do you believe in a literal Messiah to come? He said, no. I said, what do you believe then regarding the Messiah? He said, it's just world peace. It's all figured. I said, and how's that world peace going to come about? He said, well, we just pray for it. And I said, we don't think that way. <laughs> Let me tell you about how we think about Jesus Christ and had an opportunity to share the gospel with him at that point. He thought it was interesting. But I'll tell you, the thing he said as another rabbi friend of his quoted, another rabbi that I had met had quoted, the only thing we can take with us to heaven are our good works. And how sad. How sad. Religionists can only offer what this world already has. He offers the sum of all things as found in himself. Sixth, in verse 11, he sacrifices himself. This is what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And isn't that the very heart of the gospel? Christ didn't come to bring in some new system, some new way for men and women to claw their way back up to God in an endless labor of works. No, that's, that's not the gospel. The good shepherd, the divine son, so loving the father and those the father loves, agrees to give up all the eternal felicities of heaven to come and live among us in our depravity and to suffer his holiness to be offended by the stench of our collective sin and love us and die in our place, suffering the just wrath of God we deserved by making an atonement for sin in his own blood and to do this for his enemies. He sacrifices himself. False shepherds and other supposed spiritual leaders, they haven't even remotely, let alone claimed, actually to have done such a thing. You won't find that in Muhammad. You won't find that in Buddha. You won't find that in the Baha'u'llah of the Baha'is. You won't find that in any of the 333 million Hindu gods. None of them. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He dies in our place. He spares nothing, not even his own life, so that we might be rescued from sin and condemnation. He bears the very wrath of God justly due our sin that we might be blessed according to what he deserved in his perfect holiness. And then he ever lives to make intercession. And then seventh, a little bit like the first, but it's an expansion of it in verse 14, that he knows his own. He is intimately familiar with his own. He's not just acquainted with us. He knows us. 
As I said before, every doubt, every fear, every foible, every weakness, every failing, every concern, nothing troubles our hearts and minds that he's not immediately aware of and present with us in the midst of. And if no one else in the world really knows us, he does. Nothing's hidden from him. And in that, nothing alters his love. He knows what's really in you. The things you won't even admit to yourself. And he loves you perfectly. In fact, he knew us before we were even saved. And he still came and gave himself for us. Nothing that he could find in us, knowing as he does in his perfect, infinite knowledge, every time that eventually, even after we were saved, we would fail him and grieve him. He still died for us and still saved us. If my wife knew what I would be after 20 years of marriage, she would have never married me. But Christ knew what you would be, and he still died for you. We can never stumble on some new information. He can't stumble on some new information that he didn't know about us, which could in some way diminish or modify his tender care toward us and his desire for us to be with him. It was a saying back when the British Empire was at its, its height that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And it's reported that Abraham Lincoln quipped that the sun never sets on the British Empire because God can't trust them alone in the dark. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I do know this. God does not wake up in the morning and think to himself, what those humans did last night while I was asleep. He's never shocked by anything you or I do. Even Christians that have walked with him for many, many a year can fall in some very tragic ways, but he knows. All of us seek to really, really, really be deeply, thoroughly known by someone to the depths of our souls. And sometimes we try to make our spouse that person, and they can't be, because that's the role Christ reserves for himself. That's where we have to be content, that he knows us. As Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our good shepherd knows us well, so he can truly meet every need in the most perfect ways. 8 in verse 16, it says that he will bring his sheep from all the corners to make us into one flock. He is still gathering. He's still gathering. He goes out of his way to find the Samaritan woman by the will, by the well. He gives Peter a vision so that he'll go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel there. He commissions his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And what marks them all out as being truly his own? All of his sheep listen to his voice. But he's still gathering. His global work culminates in joining us all into one flock. And this is, this is what makes true Christians Christians, being his sheep who know and follow his voice. 
And then ninth in verse 28, he tells us that he gives eternal life. He gives to each of his sheep eternal life. And may I emphasize that word eternal? I don't know why some people struggle with this so much. Um, the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, the word eternal by definition means eternal? That it can't end? I, I, I don't know where the discussion goes on this. They will never perish. It's eternal life that he gives us. The very nature of the life he gives us is an everlasting, imperishable life. We can't kill it. It can't be taken from us. It can't be given away. It's eternal, everlasting life. If words mean anything, then this life that he gives us in Christ will never cease. And eternal life is not just a possession. It's a state of being. Eternal life... Look at how John himself writes about it later in, in 1 John 5. I'll just quote this quickly. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So why is our life eternal? Because it's bound up in Christ. For the believer to lose eternal life, Christ would have to lose his life. And since he can't die because he's God eternal and everlasting, we can't lose that life either. It's that simple. We're united to him, and therefore it's everlasting. Christian, you may have fallen, you may have stumbled, you may have struggled, you may still struggle in ways that you can't admit to any other living human being, but each one of us, if we are his, will make it. What part of Christ's body can he lose? And lastly, in verse 28 and 29, he keeps us in absolute safety. None can snatch us out of his hand. I want you to read those words carefully again in verse 28 and 29. Just, it's just astounding to me how people, again, can, can mess this up. Oh, thank you, Father. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So none can snatch us out of his hand. No one, not Satan, not the world, not some other person, not even ourselves. Who do we think we are that we can be stronger than the Father and the Son grasping us together. I mean, how arrogant can we be? I can lose my salvation. Well, you're an idiot. Of course you can't. Uh, but even good Christian people say stupid things sometimes, right? Yeah, I know. No. Not only can no one snatch us out of his hand, his solemn prophetic word here, and you have to watch the words very carefully, is... No one will snatch us out of his hand. He's already determined that. That's why the Apostle Paul can write in Romans 8, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And someone will say, oh, but I can. Well, you're stupid. That's a, that's a good that's a good Christian word. 
In closing then, uh, let me just make these, these quick observations. First, and the obvious application is to the church, and especially to you, Christian, who is weary and worn and troubled and tired and faltering and discouraged. Look again to whose nail-scarred hands you've been committed and take heart. He is still your shepherd. And he will shepherd you all the way home. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd of our souls. And no matter what under-shepherd has failed you or hurt you or what in life has been the heaviest of griefs to you, he will watch, he will keep, he will lead, he will protect, and he will bring you safely home to the Father. You're safe in him, and he can't fail you. Take heart. Take heart. My father-in-law, who passed away two years ago, was uh, pretty bedridden the last five years of his life. He had had five back surgeries, um, and then they had to go back in and reverse most of those surgeries. And then they tried to redo them, and then that didn't work. So they had to install a morphine pump in him to try and handle the pain. And then he had two torn rotator cuffs, but then in the process, his heart started to enlarge, and and it enlarged on one side, and they gave him a special medication, but it was $5,000 a pill. And, uh, and then it began to attack his liver, and so they said, well, which do you want? Do you want your liver or do you want your heart? He said, I guess I'll hang on to my liver a little while longer and see how the heart does. And they couldn't operate on his heart because of the two torn rotator cuffs and the morphine pump, and he's in bed, and he's in constant agony, and he's one of the happiest people I ever knew. He had a very simple trust in Christ. Just very simple. He was not a theologian. He was not a brilliant man. He was not a deep reader or a deep thinker, but he knew his Lord. And the last thing he said to my wife, the night he passed away, she was talking to him, and he looked up at her, and he said, see you later fell asleep in Christ. I don't know, maybe you're in pretty rough shape today. Let me tell you, your shepherd will take you all the way home. In the second place, this is a wonderful primer for those of us who take any leadership in Christ's church. Those New Testament words, elders, teachers, overseers, pastors, and all the like, derive their role from the same word and concept as, as shepherd. And we, we at times do well to revisit those passages regularly when, when God censures the shepherds of Israel and mark well the things that they're condemned for, to be on the lookout for how our own sinful hearts can sometimes lead us to use and abuse God's people. But so it is as under shepherds that to the great shepherd we get our marching orders to lead where Jesus would lead and only there to the Father, and to protect the flock, to be careful not to fleece them and to bind up their wounds and to refrain from harshness and to gather and not scatter and to care for them as he does. It's just a good reminder for us. But lastly, a word to those of you who don't know Christ yet, and in a crowd this size, I've got to imagine there are some here who are still outside grace. I'd 
the one thing that stands above all is marking out God's own flock is that they hear Christ's voice and then follow him in righteousness to the Father's throne. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, the shift in Jesus' metaphor from shepherd to being the door can't be overlooked. In it, he marks out his own exclusivity, that no one belongs to God's flock, but those who find admission to the Father through Christ and Christ alone. He's the exclusive means of access to God. That had to be a real gut punch to the Pharisees. And he'll reiterate of himself a short time later in John 14, 6, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but by him. And that said, as the verses above note, all the sheep, the whole world, hears his voice. And so the question I have for you today is, are you hearing him call to you to come and follow? Will you? Will you? He's calling right now through my voice. The same he has previously through the preaching of the gospel by those that have filled this pulpit in other places that you know. He's calling you right now to come away from your sin, to leave it behind, to abandon the pretended right of supremacy over your life and your goods and to come out from the fallen world and culture and its values and to live in the light of his word. He's calling you away from believing that you can be good enough in yourself and that you need no redeemer from your sin and rebellion and unbelief and pride and passions. To stop thinking that your sin is greater than his sacrifice on Calvary. Away from self-justification before God to crying out for the mercy and the forgiveness that's found only by trusting his standing in the sinner's place at Calvary and taking the full wrath of God that you deserved upon himself so that all who look upon him might be cleansed and he'll become your good shepherd. We've labored, however imperfectly, to show you something of our precious great Savior and Shepherd. So won't you come? He's calling to you right now.